0: Being a guest on this podcast confers several privileges, the most significant of which is that you don't have to sit through the terrible intro music because that gets inserted in my state-of-the-art post-production suite. Off we go then. Welcome to episode six of It's Lit But Is It Funny, the podcast where we take a deep dive into the murky waters of comic literature and coming up smelling of custard. My name is Jonathan Pinnock and I'm the author of the mathematical mystery series published by Farrago Books, the latest one of which, Bad Day in Minsk, has somewhat alarmingly just been featured in a Belarusian lifestyle magazine called City Dog. I'm actually quite scared about this. My guest today is the novelist, creative writing tutor and Lies League Supremo, Katie Darby. Katie studied English literature at Somerville College, Oxford, and took her MA in creative writing at the University of East Anglia, where she received the David Hyam Award. Her fiction has been read on BBC Radio 4, and she has published stories in magazines, including Slice, Mislexia, and The London Magazine, as well as winning prizes in several international fiction competitions, Fish, Arvon, and Redport, among others. Her first novel, The Whore's Asylum, was published by Penguin's Fig Tree Imprint in 2012. The slightly more family-friendly paperback title is The Unpierced Heart. More recently, five of her prize-winning short stories were published in the Arachne Press anthology Five by Five, and her poem Duct Tape, Milk, Shilling, Towels was named as the winner of the Shooter Poetry Prize in 2019. She teaches short story writing and writer's workshop at City, University of London, and is co-founder and director of the awarding live fiction event, Liars League, under whose auspices I once spent an exceptionally muddy weekend in the company of Katie and the actor Max Berent, performing at the Secret Garden Party. <laughs> Welcome.
1: Hello, thank you for having me on. Yes, I remember that. My God, that was wet.
0: Yeah, it was grim. It was grim. It was
1: <laughs> insane.
0: But at least well, though, that it's was... able to
1: really nice next
0: year, though. Yeah, at least it was... I was able to say, say to my kids that I'd uh, performed at the secret garden party. They,
1: exactly. You'll always have that. that,
0: that they, was, they were not quite as impressed as I'd, I'd hoped, but anyway. God, <sighs> <Good sighs> There you go.
1: Next anyway, time we'll, try Glastonbury.
0: Well, yeah, I, 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 I'll, I'll definitely be up for Glastonbury. It's <laughs> just, just, just down the road from me as well. <laughs> anyway, we will talk more later about Katie and her work, but now we're going to discuss the book that she is brought along or suggested for us and at this point I would normally dive into Wikipedia to give a brief introduction to the book under discussion. However the book that Katie has chosen represents a slight departure in that it isn't strictly speaking part of what we might refer to as the canon but it is still quite definitely a humorous book and therefore worthy of discussion. How Not to Write a Novel by novelist Sandra Newman and novelist and editor Howard Mittelmark published by Penguin in 2008. Is That Rare Thing, an educational book that also dares to be funny. So, Katie, I'm guessing this book appealed to you from the perspective of a creative writing tutor?
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, from every possible perspective, really. (laughs) Yeah, I was absolutely gutted when I read it just shortly after my own novel had been published. And I thought, my (laughs) God, this would have been so useful when I was... (laughs) Redrafting, but yes. Uh, so I've been teaching at City since uh, 2008, which is shortly after I, I graduated from UEA. And you know, creative writing tutors are always on the lookout, or well, teachers of any kind. I think they've always got a sort of weather eye open for good stuff to use, good examples. You know, kind of sort of easily digestible. You know, ideas which which uh, tell something true about your subject but in a in a pithy and interesting way and you know uh, any kind of double page spread that can be photocopied for a handout or scanned <laughs> um, so yeah um, I was really delighted from the perspective of a teacher I was so delighted to find this because and you know I picked it up I can't even remember where I found it I just probably picked it up in a bookshop you know it's got a fantastic cover which has sort of it says how not to write a novel, and then it's been badly corrected with what looks like red biro to, to oh, spell yes, it yeah. correctly. And uh, on the cover is um, is a kitten with a gun pointing at it. So I just thought that looks kind of funny.
0: Is that a reference to to, to the famous save the cat?
1: Yes, yes, don't 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 shoot the so cat or it. save the cat. Yeah. Yes, I've read save the cat as well, absolutely. Save the cat, but very specifically, I think perhaps don't put the cat in danger, um, yeah. in this case. So yeah, I thought that looks like my kind of writing book, you know. And I took it home and I read it all through in one night or maybe you know, like a night and a day. Cause it was just really like God, I would come across a particular passage of like, oh god no I do that I do that I recognize that and then I read the next page I'll be like and I see that all the time in my students you know mm. I've got beyond this rookie era myself but my god there are a lot of people still out there who could who could do with you know knowing this particular tip yeah and they just have really funny examples I think what, what I what I like best about it is that everything is demonstrated. So they'll yeah. say, you know don't wander off the point and then they'll have a kind of amusing paragraph in which the character very blatantly wanders off the point or so I was just I was just reading one which was about <laughs> they're also, I think as both both the authors are editors is Sandra Newman an editor as well, but I don't know all authors are editors to some extent, aren't they? Of yeah. um, yeah. their own work if nobody else is. But I love also how hot they are on grammar and using words correctly and knowing the meanings of the words that you use. And so they have these wonderful, like, nonsensical passages, you know, where an author mangles common expressions, and they're just, some of them are just laugh out loud, or about, you know, using cliche, not using too much punctuation, directing the reader, you know, towards a conclusion, too much swearing, Um, let's see, uh, tech porn, shoe porn, shelter porn, you know, where you... Suddenly, oh yes, this is a wonderful one actually. Magic economics, wherein mm-hmm. character funds issue from nowhere. And it's not like a, a thing that you think of naturally as, you know, oh yeah, obviously we kind of know that we, we shouldn't kind of resort to cliche and we shouldn't, you know, should make sure all our words are spelt correctly and don't march a character to the mirror just to describe them, all those things that actually, I always think everyone must know, but not everybody does know. <laughs> but magiconomics is a thing that happens quite a lot, which is where you have a character who, you see it in Woody Allen films, I don't know if you've seen that <laughs> that terrible tennis one, Double Point or something like that. Um, there's no,
0: an. I've impo- largely given up on Woody Allen by, by the time. Yeah, that this might away.
1: be one of the reasons why. There is an <laughs> impoverished actress played by some incredibly hot girl, maybe Scarlett Johansson, um, who lives in poverty in a massive Victorian flat in Notting Hill. And just like the second I saw the inside of her house, where she pays all, oh, who even knows <laughs> you know like four shillings and sixpence a month rent i was just like i don't believe this film anymore and it happens a lot in in novels yeah it's inconvenient for the character to have to go to work so they yeah. don't have a job but they do live in a nice house but there's yep. no explanation for why they live mm. in a nice house and it's it's really particularly prevalent in london novels i think oh, yes. sometimes uh, written by people who have paid off their mortgages and just have have not rented for a while, and are like, my god, is it that bad? Up?
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: so you have to sort of remind people of, of, of the economic realities of being. You know, if their character is like twenty five, they they're going to probably not have loads of money unless they've inherited it. And yeah, you know, just those things about thinking about how a character lives in the world. You know, when when the spotlight of the novel is not on them, you know, it might be a, a romance. But what happens, you know, when you're 25 and you're in your first job or second job and you don't have loads of money, you have to think about where you're going to go and how much you can spend on the cocktails and are you going to get an Uber home or are you going to get the tube? And all this stuff is part of the texture of the character's life and you can't just give them sort of invisible money to spend because you want to write about posh places. Yeah, so that's just an example where they just like come up with, you know, uh, very true things that you sort of instinctively know as a reader – when you when you see it in a book that is wrong but they sort of articulate it and you're like yes that thing don't do that thing
0: yeah no that is an important one I'm trying to think of was that one of the ones where I sort of had a guilty feeling that oh dear if I cocked this up in one of my novels but (laughs) I I do remember having to think about that sort of thing yeah yeah I mean my my, couple of my favorites were and by the way I'm an expert marksman Oh, I love that one. Where the payoff is not set <laughs> up. Yeah, it's like the he to,
1: to, to go underwater.
0: Yeah, this... as, the, as the water crept up higher and higher, Jack realised the hydraulics had failed and he would have to swim underwater the length of the now submerged hallway if he was to save Cynthia. The situation looked hopeless. Fortunately, the years Jack had spent among the pearl divers of the South Pacific following a shipwreck had trained him to hold his breath for nearly 14 minutes, surpassing the ability of most Westerners.
1: <laughs> <laughs> how convenient
0: and, Yeah, and on the next page there's where the setup reveals the payoff which is the, the flip side of that Yeah, and which is where um, Jack surveyed the rising water with a smile with his almost instinctive understanding of hydraulics he knew it would only take five minutes to swim down that corridor underwater something he could easily achieve with his skills it was good to know Cynthia wasn't in any real danger oh god <laughs> my, 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 my all time favourite author Dan Brown uh, does this wonderful the time <laughs> there's a wonderful sequence in um, angels and demons I think where for no reason at all at some at, quite early on in the book I think he just happens to mention that you could survive a fall out of a helicopter at 10,000 feet in certain circumstances and you think why is he telling me this oh I know why he's told me oh, this what's going to happen minute. and yeah. sure enough at the climax of the book he, the protagonist does exactly that
1: that's lampshading yeah, yeah yeah that i think that is the correct term for it. i looked i looked up something like that lampshading where something is really improbable <laughs> but you then yeah. point it out or have a character point it out or explain in advance a thing that the reader will find really hard to believe yeah on the plus side dan brown appears to have done it right at the start but it's so out of context it seems that yeah. you're like, well, spoilers oh, what, for the end of the. <laughs> what was
0: that all about? Yes. <laughs>
1: exactly. Just casually having a conversation about falling out of helicopters, you know? Yeah, yeah I think you have to kind of you have to put that sort of thing in you know if he was doing a pub quiz or something if he was talking to a helicopter expert i don't know mm. But those things i think do do better when they're being sort of hidden in among other random facts so it's a
0: conjurer's trick isn't it, 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 it yes,
1: it's yes absolutely yeah 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 misdirection
0: distract misdirection yeah yeah,
1: um, yeah yeah but you know what <laughs> What do we know? Is Dan Brown? He's <laughs> great, right, isn't he? He's yeah, doing yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if yeah. he only makes that one mistake, I think I'd be
0: okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, well.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, shall I? Shall I like give you some further? Yeah, go on. Favorites. All right. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna read from words and phrases. Okay. So they've got so the book is divided into different sections. There's the bit at the beginning where they have this lovely metaphor of traffic cops and you know a rule of the road is you know don't run a red light uh, a guideline or an observation of people's behavior on the road is if you drive headfirst into a brick wall it doesn't usually end well and so they're saying we're not laying down rules we're making observations because you've seen this this ca- these car crashes of doffles over and over again mm. yeah and yeah and the idea that it's a sort of anti writing book you know it's not telling you what to do it's telling you what not to do because it's so much easier I have an exercise in my dialogue class where I ask, I divide it into two and uh, I ask one group to come up with examples of what makes good dialogue. And the other half gets the fun job of uh, coming up with examples and ideas about what makes bad dialogue. And guess what? One list is always much longer than the other because it's so much easier to think of and point out and demonstrate things that clunk than it is you know things things that make it good and you can also you can always think of an exception for each one you know oh a character shouldn't have a stiff formal voice well yes unless they're a stiff formal character for example mm. you know and unless they sort of pride themselves on never using contractions unless they're very sort of buttoned up head of audience like right? you know not too much hesitation or repetition or well except that people do use hesitation repetition it could be used for dramatic purposes to indicate somebody's nervous you know so you can always think of exceptions but it's so much easier to think of like what not to do than what to do and they make the what not really funny so their their sections are on plots there we go beginnings and setups complications and pacing endings they've got character they've got a section on style (laughs) they've got one called the world of the bad novel setting research and historical background particularly interesting to me theme part six special effects and novelty acts do not try this at home and part seven i think possibly the most kind of essential for anyone to read who is 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 hoping to to write and sell their writing how not to sell a novel uh which is just all the mistakes that people might make in a submission letter you know how not to write a synopsis the classic one is not getting to the end not telling people what um yeah
0: do do not include the dog washing scene
1: do not include the dog washing scene for god's sake absolutely but yeah no the favorite thing i think when when people i used to teach novel writing at city as well and was when i got people to write synopses even though i gave them examples even though i said the synopsis tells the story of the whole book people would come in with what were basically trailers and then they go will she ever find love and i'm like well, does she ever find love? Because by the time I get to the end of the book, I want to know. And this is meant to be the story of the book. So don't keep me on a cliffhanger. So are sticks and stones still an option? Wherein the author mangles common expressions. Herbert Huvier was the creme de la Crème of fashion reporters. He had spent six years honing his journalistic nose as a foreign correspondent first, and he was pretty tough company to get past. Normally, he wouldn't trust anyone with his back tied and always made sure he looked before he took a leap of fate. But he had met his match made in heaven in Vera Wang, the fashionable designer. She was as pretty as he pictured, with a body so great you could bounce her hindquarters off it. She was the apples and oranges of his eye. Herbert, or Herb, tried not to give in to his urgent, but she was a piece of no resistance and his masculine wiles spelt with an H, were no match for her cat's meow. When she opened the door for their second date, she looked great, stunning him. Your place or mine, she queried. Touche, he returned, begging her question. Yeah, where people have heard certain phrases and <laughs> is it for the Princess Bride? Like someone says, you, you use that word a lot, I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> you do come across people who are like, you know, they've been using, I don't know, some something the wrong way, you know, uh, uh, have a sack or something, you know, they they think uh, have a sack means you're German. I don't know, whatever. But they've been using it the wrong way for years and they're absolutely convinced and you can tell what they think it means by the context, but you're like, I'm really sorry to burst your bubble. And maybe this is why you you know you didn't get those jobs that you applied
0: for. <laughs>
1: but yeah, I mean, I cannot over over stress the importance of just, you know, reaching for a dictionary sometimes. And for, so, you know, as 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 writers, I really think you should have at least a passing interest in the correct use of words. And this goes for grammar as well because otherwise you know what you end up writing what is basically meaningless <laughs> and confusing people and you know misleading them when you want to um, kind of make things clearer yeah so i i am one of those people who when i'm marking stuff i can't i can't sort of not not fix the typos and where i can i will sort of point out to people if they're making a, a mistake repeatedly not because i'm a terrible pedant who just loves to point at people and go haha you got it wrong but because you know, the more you know about, you know, the, the best way to use the words or or grammar or punctuation, whatever it is, the better your writing will be and the more kind of flexible and confident I would hope you hmm. would be. So yeah, this stuff's important.
0: And if, if you make obvious errors like that, it takes the reader out, doesn't it? And, and it oh, breaks yeah. the flow and yeah. the reader suddenly doesn't have confidence that you're taking them somewhere where you, that they feel yeah. safe.
1: It's a fragile thing, isn't it? You know, trust in the author. And you can just break it in so many ways. I mean, in some ways, I sometimes think of, you know, when you're writing a novel, it's a bit like the French oral exam. You start off with 100 points, total trust in the reader. uh, Sorry, the reader has total trust in you. They've chosen to pick up the book they've chosen to open, open page one and start reading. And that's a bloody win already, as any author knows. So from from now on, you have to not lose any points because once you lose a certain number of points, they will just be like, nope. You know, once, once you go to the impoverished actress's beautiful two-bedroom Victorian flat in Notting Hill, uh, nope realism I thought this is a realistic story no it's not anymore so you know you you can do that in a number of ways you can have a a boring character you can have a sort of non-credible setup you can have too many coincidences in a plot which is a classic one you can do your research badly you can have stilted dialogue you can just plain get stuff wrong you can mangle your words and it's it's kind of daunting in a way because there is so much you can kind of mess up but on the plus side every mistake you make will hopefully mean you know if it's pointed out to you at least well hopefully mean you don't make it again so you know that is how we learn at the end of the day and first drafts are full of just absolutely horrible mistakes and bloopers and you know I had a even in I think it was a fairly late proof of of Whore's Asylum slash Unpierced Heart. I had a character whose eyes went from blue to green to grey over the course of 300 pages, and I was like, oh... (laughs) sorry (laughs) just because they came in very occasionally and each time I was like I I don't know green I hadn't gone back to double check and I was damned if I was like going through all 300 pages looking for an instance of their eyes because the thing is when you're when you're trying to sort of use elegant variation as well you might have described the eyes as hazel or asia or something you can't just word search blue so it's it's easily done but you know we're all making mistakes all the time and having them pointed out in a funny way without you know without it being your specific story that's being hauled up in front of class as it were it's just a really kind of gentle funny introduction like watching other people deliberately get it wrong is just entertaining so you know we we all love to laugh at banana skins and this is just like 200 banana skins that that so many authors will uh, will slip up on if they're not pointed out and yeah
0: yeah the one that the one that bothered me slightly special effects and novelty acts at the end deals with basically sex jokes and postmodernism doesn't it and it's it so difficult that, that, that it was almost saying that of, avoid humor if you can if you can possibly do so <laughs> or maybe it's just being specific about just telling jokes and
1: uh and yeah. laughing. let's have a look so there's
0: <laughs> there's the sight gags that uh sight gags are, are really really hard to do they tricky, aren't they?
1: yeah oh yeah jokes okay the newborn dinosaur where the reader and everyone else has heard that one before a mm. confederacy of shills wherein characters laugh dis- disproportionately yes your your main character has to have a sense of humor and be hilarious so you have everyone yeah. around them laughing, yeah, sarcastic at their jokes. The sight gag in which there is a sight
0: which gag. There is a sight gag.
1: <laughs> yeah, oh, it's a tough one. I mean, I don't know. I think so much humour in novels is situational and it, and character led as well. Yeah, it's about you know why would this situation make this character uncomfortable? What's you know who's hiding in the? bedroom cupboard you know what's under the under the couch what embarrassing secret could be let slip I used to read like well I used to read everything when I was an adolescent but I used to read some of the Tom Sharp books which are
0: full of loads of those
1: yeah yeah absolutely and used to write loads of them as well but you know the very Hmm. kind of 70s 80s early 90s which are full of sex and very black humor Um, and in fact it's um, quite
0: misogynistic as well
1: (laughs) Yeah, you wouldn't want. Oh my God, let alone the pictures. God, um, and uh, yeah, there there would be just there would be quite a lot of farce in it, mm. but it was rarely sight gags. It was people getting themselves into the most ridiculous, convoluted situations. I seem to remember, and usually due to embarrassment or shame or something they they that is absurd about their personalities. So I think there's a student in Port House Blue, maybe. Um, who's bought a load of condoms, and this is, you know, I, d- yeah, I don't know. Yeah,
0: I was thinking of that scene. yes.
1: yeah, when you might get embarrassed to, uh, to to have condoms, and he's sort of erotically obsessed with his cleaning lady.
0: Yeah,
1: and he has to get rid of the condoms, so I think he blows them all up and shoves them up the chimney or something.
0: He replaces them with the gas tap, doesn't he? Oh, the gas tap! Oh my god! And then does he blow himself up? From the explosion, yeah. Spoilers. Uh, but all, and, and they also that they. The ones some explode up the chimney, and the other ones just get. Oh, they bubble um, around the room. They bubble. And the, and the, and then the and when the, the the weather cools, they all drop down to earth in the main oh. port. And oh my god! There, there is a great sight gag there, and as them sort of bouncing around, and and one of the porters prodding them with a with a stick to.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, to Capture them. Yeah, but I think, but that's that's like the sight gag comes at the end of such a build up. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like there, the there's an story extraordinary build-up It's build not, it's up not to it. one shot. It's a punchline no. to a gag that has been like drawn out. This poor guy, like working himself into more and more, not trying to get rid of these condoms because he's so embarrassed of them. So yeah, so that that sort of turning the screw kind of humour, I think I think can work really well. Because if this character was unembarrassed about having condoms, you've got mm. no scene. No, you've You've got like an entire chapter missing, but yeah, I, I, it can be done. And, you know, I love it when I read a funny story or a funny novel. I think it's much, much harder to sustain in, in novels because, you know, you have to keep it going, you know, in the same way that, you know, doing a five minute set in a comedy club or whatever You can put all your best gags in, and you can get it completely slick, and you know you can, or you can kind of change to suit the mood of the audience. But you better have a lot of very good material if you're going to do like a a two-hour special or a a, you know an arena tour. So yeah, that's why I think you know writing comic novels it's very difficult because you can't you can't it's it's about pace, it's about character, it's about brilliant plotting most of the time really really fantastic setups and then unexpected payoffs you know what a challenge i think in short stories you can derive more humor perhaps from a voice alone and that's something that works really well for Lies league and you can be more absurd because people will be like okay this is a joke and i am you know i i get this i get that this is kind of a piss story it's an exaggerated character it's you know it's an unlikely situation whatever it is and yeah, absolutely, you know, I'll, I'll buy into this. But I think often what we want from our kind of comic novels is characters we can believe in and stories we can believe in. And yet at the same time, they have to make us laugh in a original and interesting way. You know, the, honestly, the bar is so high. For comic novels. There's what's the P. G. Woodhouse Prize, is it? Or the Bollinger Prize for
0: Yep. Yeah, that's yeah. the one.
1: Yeah. Comic Have you ever been? Do they nominate you? How, how do you get a nomination for that then?
0: I have no idea. I don't think I've been nominated. Well, if I have been nominated, I didn't get it involved with it. You
1: should ask your agent or your publisher. You should mm. ask them. Because it might be one of those you have to pay to enter. Yeah. Um, like so many book publishers Yeah. So comedy is is great when it's done and when people have a naturally funny writing voice it's a freaking gold dust it is like gold dust and I always encourage people who like come to my classes and they're writing something funny I'm like, oh thank god you know what a joy <laughs> to read a piece of work that is funny and they're often like oh I didn't know oh should I yeah I mean this is, this is kind of what I wanted to write about and I you know I like to write funny stories but I feel like maybe I should you know maybe short stories should be serious I'm like god no somebody throw a pie
0: that's interesting because i, would, I mean, that i'm pleased to hear that you, you you would definitely encourage that then
1: yeah i mm. mean, certainly in short fiction certainly in short fiction mm. i yeah. would encourage i would also encourage people I would, I would you know what there's enough misery in the world right yeah. <laughs> I would encourage people um, to, of any story, writing in any vein and at any length, to be as funny as they possibly can if they feel that serves the story. You know, if, having read so many, I've read thousands of short stories in my life. Mm-hmm. And over the last year or so, a little bit more than a year, I've been reading The Slush Pile for Granter. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, which is fascinating because the standard is extremely high. There's not a lot of genre and there's not a lot of humour. But whenever I find one and you know I'd say about 70 to 80 percent of it is well written you know it could get in somewhere else Probably about 10, 10 to 20 percent is very, very well written and then it becomes really agonizing trying to narrow them down. But mm-hmm. if I find a well-written story that's also funny I'm like my God that is that's at the top of my list because mm-hmm. again, as I say, thousands of short stories have, have passed my eyes. And of the published ones, there there are there are more funny ones. Maybe I seek them out. But of the unpublished ones, I tell you, like ninety percent of them are pretty depressing.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I I made this comment talking about Kate Atkinson in in the the last episode. We, we uh-huh. looked at emotionally weird, uh-huh. and talk about Kate Atkinson because she actually won the Breadport Prize, didn't she, with a a funny story? Did she? And- well, and and Good. that is, that struck me as quite extraordinary that the the, the Bridport stories tend to be very very gloomy, very serious.
1: Um, was it early or late in her career? Very early. Oh, brilliant! Even better. It was,
0: it was the first chapter of a debut of behind the scenes of um, oh, seen
1: the museum. Oh, fantastic! Literally the
0: first chapter of it.
1: Oh, how nice! Yeah, I was going to say because some important. of the some of the story prizes where they like they know that they're by famous people. More leeway is given. Do you know what I mean? They'll be like,
0: <laughs> yeah. "It's a
1: funny story." I I don't know. Can we have a funny story? Oh, it's okay. It's by Hilary Mantel. All right. In that case, oh, cool. <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> thank God. Phew. It's okay to like it. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. That's awesome. And every everyone should should make things as funny as they they could. As I say, if it serves the story. And um, but just because there's so much, and it's so much easier to write a story. In which sad things happen to you've sad a, people
0: you've got a direct connection to emotion there haven't you
1: yes a, exactly short, you've got a
0: short easy shortcut if, absolutely if it's a lot, you know, about it.
1: yeah it's a lot easier to make people i won't say cry but i will say sad <laughs> make people <laughs> sad or depressed than it is to make them laugh because you know that's that's why we pay to go to comedy gigs And it's what I call dead baby syndrome. Um, Mm. I have read, again, in in the unpublished towers of stories that I've read, really disproportionate numbers of stories uh, can be about dead babies. Because, (laughs) yeah, I know, I know. And I do, like, I did go on a little rant on this in class once. um, (laughs) Just saying, guys, I just, there's there's no no no-nos in short story writing except don't write a story about dead babies unless you've got a really... Really good reason to do that, mm. yeah. Uh, we had a league theme called Beginning and End. Maybe three or four years ago. Oh, coincidentally, just when I was heavily pregnant with my first child.
0: Oh
1: God! Um, <laughs> a couple of like he was overdue by like ten days, mm. and so I was reading the stories as they came, and I was like, you know, here I'm sitting around the house just waiting to pop. I'll just read the league stories. There were fifty of them, and five of them were about involved in some way, you know, a miscarriage, a stillbirth, you know, oh, and, uh, yeah, like, a, like, there was like a baby's body on a beach or something. And I was like, oh my God, guys, I know it's theme beginning and end, but yeah. you do not have to be so obvious for a start. Obviously five separate people had had this incredibly original idea. And also, you know, I think a lot of people who wouldn't harm a dog in a short story are more than happy to just like drown a child or something um, <laughs> <laughs> like there are certain things you probably shouldn't shouldn't you know you you can obviously you can do them in fiction I'd much rather you do them in fiction than in real life but you know think about it a bit more. I think you know people reach for a kind of easy easy tear jerk sometimes a little bit irresponsibly and they'll write this like horrifying stuff and you just think, but why would I want to read it? (laughs) Don't forget the ultimate goal of writing a short story is that people should, on some level, enjoy it Mm. and want to, and it should make them think and feel and not just feel like they want to kill themselves, you know? That's not really the feeling that we're aiming for here. Yeah, and that it should have, you know, meaning beyond shock value. So, yeah, as I say, and, and you know, you, you will come across a lot of this again, you know, unpublished short stories. It's not just the dead babies. It's the like, I think Cherry, Cherry Potts, who runs the Rackney Press mm. just flat out refuses to take any stories about Alzheimer's, uh, you yeah, know. Yeah, that,
0: that, that's the other one, isn't it? that that's, uh, you see an awful lot of those.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. I mean, people people write about it to some extent, perhaps because it's touched their lives. Mm. And they're yeah. sort of processing that stuff. And that's fair enough. And I very much hope that, you know, those people who are writing about their babies, it's, it's not because it's touched their lives and they're processing it. Uh, you know, it's mm. just because they're being, being a little bit lazy thematically speaking. Uh, but, you know, for, for example, you know, it could be possible to write, a, you know, a funny touching story about somebody with dementia or somebody with Alzheimer's, but my God, that's hard.
0: Yeah, and, that's a know, very, I, very fine line.
1: Yeah, that's 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 a hell of a brief, and you know I understand why. And there are certain publishers as well, or you know I think there's a prize which is fairly recently set up. I can't remember what it's called, but it's for a novel or a short story which uh, contains no no violence towards women. I mm. know it's just, it's for a thriller, a crime novel or a thriller. Oh, there was the most, yes,
0: I remember that. Yeah. Yes,
1: which yes. is actually, you know, it shouldn't be
0: that hard. But it's yeah, it's, yeah. But very it's, hard.
1: Yeah absolutely they've, they've obviously seen a lot like mm. and really a lot of kind of female bodies piling up in their submissions piles and are thinking well surely there's could there be something else you know could we move away from this a little bit so yeah I, I quite like the idea that you know people are forced to be a bit original and do something different and you know if if you want to kind of shock people or make them move them don't just reach for a corpse don't just reach for a you know somebody's mind's going think of think of something else I mean some of the most well one of the best stories I think that we published at Lies League and it's in the Arachne Press I think it's in Weird Lies it's in the award-winning one anyway I think that's mm. Weird Lies it's called The Elephant in the Tower by David McGrath mm. and he used to be a tour guide going around uh, London you know taking tours around London and there is a true story of an elephant that was gifted to King of England, I think Henry the or something like that, like way back when, by the King mm. of France. And you know, it was just kept in the Tower of London. They had no idea what to feed it. They're like, well, it's a mighty beast. Let's give that some meat. And the elephant's like, uh, I guess so. <laughs> this is all I got. And they would give it barrels of wine to drink. So it was just constantly mm. pissed and on the wrong, you know, on the wrong diet. And poor elephant, mm. like just probably just had a terrible life. But it's told in the voice. Of this French elephant, gay French elephant, by the way, because you know Louis of Louis of France was his lover. <laughs> <laughs> and
0: it's just, wonderful.
1: it's brilliant. Oh, honestly, I I encourage you. It might not be in the lies League website, but it's definitely on Weird Lies. And if you really want, if to. if it's in iPhone, Weird
0: Lies, <laughs> uh, I've got Weird Lies because I was in that one.
1: Yeah, oh, honestly, I'm I'm pretty sure it's in Weird Lies. Um, but yeah, let's just get just. Just look it up. And oh my God, Ed Cooper Clark, one of our actors, did a brilliant reading. So, you know, we've got the elephant coming in uh, and he's really, really on his, uh, you know, on his honour as well. He's he's He thinks he's better than all the oh, animal yeah, animals sure. the yep. yeah. yeah. So he's it. coming in, the elephant refuses to be introduced to everyone because he's too posh. And the polar bears are, uh, comes over and is like, all right, mate, what's your name? <laughs> so all the animals are characterised. And then it's... You know, and it's the the dire of the elephant being kept in the tower. It's never going to be let. he's never going to be let go, and it's oh, absolutely gosh. tragic towards the end. Honestly, it's like really, really heartrending, and it's because it starts off so funny and this character so mm. absurd, and the whole premise is so absurd. And by the end of it, I swear you will have a tear in your eye for this elephant, this poor mm. elephant. And you know, really, the the what. McGrath does so brilliantly there. He's a very, very good comic writer anyway, which is, we love his stories. You know, it's sort of absolutely black as pitch, his humour, Irish writer. But yeah, it's so good, I think. Not because it's like gag, 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 gag. You know, this is not like a Tim Vine one-liner you know, mm. it's not four, 2,000 words of, of one-liners, but it sets up a funny situation. The character is fantastic. The, it is absurd, but in a kind of Beckettian way. And it's also, you know, undercutting that absurdity. The thing that makes you laugh at the beginning makes you weep at the end. And mm. you have this huge contrast between, you know, it's that classic book blurb, isn't it? Oh, it made me laugh and made me cry. Mm. Great you know and what that means is you've got these two extremes of emotion the author is manipulating you in one way in chapter one and then they pull the rug out from under your feet and because you're coming from a high that Mm -hmm. kind of roller coaster experience that emotional roller coaster experience is much more exciting emotionally and much more compelling to, to to read than any amount of like just really depressing stuff piling on top of a really depressed character where just things go from bad to worse although having said that I am somewhat I'm reading the Dan um, Simmons novel The Terror on which the recent kind of oh, TV series yeah. mm. so I watched the series and my very good friend who's also a brilliant writer and a funny short story writer Lauren Van schaik I recommend her work and she just got listed in the galley beggar short is in Gally beggar and she oh, had yeah. a, a, a brilliant story about uh, a, a nunnery full of of cat obsessed nuns in the in sort of 14th century france and that was in the white review anyway like she can do humor and she can do literary and you know, whatever anyway she bought me the terror and it's basically 700 pages of people just like dying in extremely cold conditions but it's really tense and it's really well historically researched and all that sort of thing i wouldn't normally recommend that but it's 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 basically horror fiction and it's basically a tragedy it's the structure of the book is is a tragedy so things you know hope exists in that story though however i would say you know there are kind of pinpoint moments you know potential reversals where they think that everything's going to be okay and then it's not and then they think that everything's going to be okay and then it's not but what people too often Mm -hmm. do i think you know it looks like it's going to be pretty terrible and then you know the outlooks bad it's going to rain you go outside and it snows you slip in the snow and break your leg you know the ambulance that's come come to come to rescue runs you over that sort of thing that kind mm-hmm. of down constant downward trajectory that that sometimes people kind of feel like the more misery they pile on a character the more sort of meaningful or profound a story is but that's that's not how it works we just lose interest after a while i think as readers Comedy and 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 they they can be very slow as well. These books, all these stories, at the very least, humor, like funny books. I'm trying to think of a funny book that is not well paced or that doesn't have quite a brisk pace. And I can only assume they are all unpublished.
0: Yes, that's probably the answer.
1: <laughs> Just trying to think of a funny book I really like. Like Hitch, you meant you mentioned Douglas Adams and Hitchhiker <laughs> is you know really really quick pace. Like so much happens they zip around the universe the dialogue's really snappy and whenever something you know appears to be uh sort of on a hiatus we just zip to the book don't we and have you know a little humorous aside I mean
0: that that is a fantastic device that the the book
1: it's so good isn't it
0: it's it's a work of genius that
1: so clever yeah Yeah, yeah we should all do that shouldn't we (laughs) <laughs> so yes yeah. it's, I think there's one point in fact where Arthur is trying to get a cup of tea out of the ship's computer mm. by describing the history of the East India Company or something like that and you just like cut to and you realize this is going to take hours <laughs> and we just cut <laughs> to some description of something else from the book something I mean, it's, it's always kind of tangentially related but yeah yeah so you, you've got to have pace and, and that's a really hard thing to do and I think sometimes that's why why people are afraid also it's much worse it's so much worse, isn't it? When you tell a joke and it fails. Oh, yeah. And nobody laughs. Yeah. Because if you tell a sad story, people can't, like, react inappropriately. They're not allowed to burst out laughing. That mm. is etiquette, you know? You don't talk about your hamster dying and people are just kind of snorting in the corner. They have to make a sad face. They have to be like, oh, my God, that sounds awful. Oh, no, you know? Mm. Uh, and I think so, therefore, we find it more kind of less socially risky and... You know, yeah, that's,
0: a, is that's a very good
1: point. Yeah. Yeah. Writing is different, but I think we still think of it in a way, you know, we are as it were, we're talking to people, we're talking to our readers, but there's so much less risk involved in writing a sad story where you're not trying to provoke, you know, as, as difficult a reaction as as laughter, as unusual a reaction, as yeah. as laughter and humour. You're just kind of piling piling misery on misery or, or you're telling a kind of ordinary story of ordinary lives which is totally fine and can be brilliant but it's easier to write these kind of these these more sober things uh and more somber mm.
0: i should say i wonder if if humor goes down particularly well at live events because you can get the cues from other people that this is the point to laugh because um, the the audience yeah. maybe some of the audience will get the joke and then mm. oh yeah I, maybe i should laugh at this point
1: yeah, yeah, it really, it really does, I would say, because Liars League, I think one of, one of the sort of non-stated reasons, okay, one of the reasons that we started Liars League, myself and Tim Aldrich, a friend of mine, went yeah. to... Um...
0: I was just about to, to launch into... Oh, sorry. Yeah. What, what? No, 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 don't apologise, because I was just thinking, we've been talking about Liars League without actually explaining what Liars League is, and I was just about to say, can you explain what it is, and you, you very Hi. brilliantly started doing it and I should have just let you do it. Go on. (laughs) It is a
1: bi-monthly live literature event where actors read new short stories and one of the reasons that uh, me and Tim started it is we went to a short story reading event and the stories were very good but one of the authors who were reading there were the authors reading new short stories so not people who'd been on the circuit forever but were perhaps not very practiced at reading aloud one of them was really quiet one of them went really fast and one of them had quite a strong regional accent and that much as I love a regional accent it was just like you have that very slight like ear delay and they were also reading quite fast so it's In all three cases, it was quite hard for for the story to come across as well as it should have, just because of the way that it was being read. And I think, in fact, if the person with the accent had slowed down, it would have been completely fine because your ear, you kind of get your ear in after a while. But yeah, so it was just... It just made it more difficult. Oh, and, and the the voice of the story was not in that accent, so you know it wasn't. I think it was a sort of neutral third person voice, so it slightly was at odds with the story. And yeah, we thought, wouldn't it be great if like those authors have been able to, you know, maybe cast the story appropriately, and or, or you know just get an actor if it's like third person where you don't need. It's always rather awkward, I think, if you write in voices voice as a particular character. Like, you know, if I, um, you know, I one of my if I wrote as a sort of, you know, seven year old child, I'm not going to be very convincing standing up on stage. Or a kind of 95 year old Scotswoman, yeah. I'm not very convincing. But wouldn't it be great if we could get someone who is who is closer to the character who's speaking, mm-hmm. or somebody who's got performance training? Basically, mm-hmm. a lot of authors just they loathe the idea of standing up on stage and reading their own work aloud and you know they often you know they might got the opportunity to do it but they're like no 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 I want to be published I want words to be on the page there's a reason that I sit in a garret you know writing rather than uh, go out to clubs performing because this is what I'm good at and the performing stuff is not what I'm good at so yeah we uh, thought I'd done a bit of directing and uh, knew quite a few actors and we thought we'd bring the two together, short stories and actors. And, yeah, it works really
0: well, actually. And this was back in 2000 and... 2007, First live event. So it's
1: yep. like, <clears throat> it's a long time. It's 14th birthday. Oh, my God. Wow. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, it's really fun. Amazing. You know, we wouldn't, wouldn't do it if it wasn't fun. We'd be doing it all the way through lockdown. Yeah, we're doing it online and so forth and it, it was never a, a specific policy that we only wanted fu- not only wanted funny stories but um, that we were going to kind of have a positive bias towards funny stories mm. but we chose the stories for our first event and I think two of them were kind of quite one of them was you know like hearted one of them was like clearly sort of written to be funny and the other ones are kind of more serious or thoughtful and just kind of randomly, and the funny one was like more of a hit than we thought it would be. Mm-hmm. And the light-hearted one, which I think came after the funny one, so that functioned as a sort of warm-up. <laughs> the light-hearted one, we're like, wow, people are really loving this light-hearted one. is getting a few laughs, you know, on the mm-hmm. page. We weren't thinking of it as kind of laughs, no, but no, this is happening. So yeah, that thing of a crowd being being warm and knowing that they're in for a for a fun night and that it's meant to be fun mm-hmm. and it's okay <clears throat> to laugh and react and kind of you know clap at different bits or whatever it is like it's okay to kind of respond in a way that is more like a comedy club ideally without the heckling and mm-hmm. less kind of solemn Sitting there ingesting literature, kind of reading. You know, there is a certain kind of respectful somberness about some live readings which is, you know, everyone's at the Church of Literature and we all have to kind of sit there very quietly and not shuffle and, you know, drink our warm white wine and and, and that sort of thing. The idea that a literary event should, should be fun to attend and that people should, like, show up and be like, oh, wow, that was great. Yeah. I didn't think, you know, I didn't think it would be that much fun. And, you know, bring their friends along because it is a fun evening to come to. Because um, yeah.
0: the audience is growing, so- isn't it? Because I, I remember, I think, the first... When I got in was in two thousand eight, and, and it was in the little room above the pub. Yeah. And then a few years later, you are in the it's the Cavendish, Cavendish Square, Phoenix? the Phoenix, Phoenix. Yeah, the Phoenix. Yeah. And that's, that's a much bigger room downstairs, and you're still packing it out.
1: Oh yeah, was, yeah, yeah yeah yeah. It's uh, yeah, it's got to be distance now of course, but then, no, that's a really yeah. big room, and yeah, you know there's an appetite for it, which mm. is good because you know, and it's also my god, it's cheap. It's probably. <laughs> entertainment in the west End. we haven't changed our prices for like 10 years we started off at two quid and then we like did a hike to three quid after about a year and it's been a fiver for at least 10 years so if you can get a ticket for anything else two hours of live entertainment for a fiver in in the west end of london please let me know i'd love to go um (laughs) But yeah, like is somewhat absurdly cheap. I think for the amount of kind of entertainment provided. Right. But you know, we we buy the authors. Uh, I mean, for that reason, to some extent, we we aren't able to to pay the authors and actors directly, right. but we buy them drinks and the night. And you know, if they can't make it, we'll we'll buy them a book and stuff. So it's it's kind of token payment. But yeah, obviously they will. The authors will get a live, uh, you know, a professional actor to read their work, mm. and I think that's often you know a sort of valuable novelty.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. Um, I mean, it, it's a fantastic thing to, to hear hear a you know, proper actor read your stuff. Yeah,
1: it's yeah, really, really um, yeah. I think I think a lot of people really appreciate it. And Emma Gray, who's an author who has recently started submitting to us, and we've I don't think we've picked up every story that she's submitted, but quite a few. <laughs> uh, she writes she writes in Scots and she, and vernacular Scots, so it's all like spelt Scots as well. Mm-hmm. And we've got she's got a lovely Scots accent herself, but she's. You know she would prefer not to perform it herself if there's a, a professional actress available, mm-hmm. and there is a girl called Lois Tucker who's read her stories and does a brilliant job. And you know, that is just a really nice example of like actor and author sort of coming together and uh, sort of finding the, the right balance for the story. And frequently, you know, an author will have a rehearsal with the actor, and the actor will ask them all these penetrating questions. I've read this, they'll be like, I've read this story three times. And um, I noticed that on page whatever, and the author's sitting there going, "Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> this person knows the story better than I do
0: because I
1: pretty much submitted it a couple of months ago, and I'm just kind of here it here for the jollies, you know." Yeah. Um, and then they'll ask like really detailed questions about a character's background, or do you think Johnson should have um, a Liverpudlian accent or a Mancunian accent? Which part of Manchester are they from? <laughs> and like, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> That kind of respectful attention, you know, that kind of deep diving into the context of a story or the back history of a character or where it's set... what a particular line means you know half the time like the actors I'll have gone through it looking for typos and then the actors will be like so on page three I think there's a (laughs) repeated oh god I should have seen that but you know you have all these eyes on your work you have somebody thinking about the character and the story really deeply in a lot of detail so that they can get it right and I think that's not only a very flattering thing it's a really valuable thing for Mm -hmm. you as a as a writer to have that kind of forensic eye that sort of almost editorial input from you know me as the editor and kind of you know uh, behind the scenes person but but also for the for the actor who comes at it from a different perspective as well they'll Mm -hmm. come at it from a performance perspective as as well as being readers themselves and they can find stuff in stories as well. You know, that thing where you're like, oh, I don't know, is that one going to go down all right? And it's an absolute like roaring success. And you think, how did that happen? Or a story that you think is it's all right, it's fun, it's a bit silly. And then you realize, you know, is it too flimsy? Is it a bit like, you know, are people just going to think it's a bit dumb? And then it gets read out. And people are just absolutely, it may indeed be a very silly story but people are loving it. And it's it's all in the performance. It's what it is. It's in the story, but it needs to be brought out by the performance. And because of the context, it works in a, in a completely different way. It works as a piece of, you know, theatre, basically, you know, a, a comic monologue. We had one which was, I think Christmas 2019, there was one which was written in the style of a nursery newsletter. <laughs> and how lovely it was today to, you know, almost kind of Joyce Grenfley. And Gloria Sanders, who's one of our liars, she reads the stories, but she's also like a stalwart actor. She's super adaptable. And she's just, she's a brilliant comic actress. And she just like absolutely nailed it. To the extent that when we had a fire alarm in the middle of the story, that (laughs) got And then her response to it got a laugh. And then we managed to keep people like in their seats for sort of five minutes while the fire alarm was taken off. And when she got back on stage, she's got a round of applause and then finished the story so (laughs) you know uh what can i say actors are awesome but yeah you know for a writer whose reward is so often you know in in months and months time they will get a hard copy of something that looks nice through the door with their words in it or they will see uh, get a link from the editor of a a web scene to actually go to a live event and you know if, if you've written a kind of poignant story your reward is silence that thing where everyone is obviously like on the edge of their seat or just listening really hard and you can hear a pin drop and you know the, the old cliche sort of act having them in the palm of their hand that's your reward. and if you've written a funny story your award is laughter and either way like you've got these you actually see your readers hanging on your words you may not be saying them but they are your words you wrote them you can take the credit so I think I think that is Probably quite a new experience for a lot of writers. That live experience, uh, without having the nerves of having to, to read it out themselves, and I hope it encourages people who write funny stuff for us and get a kick out of it, out of hearing it read, to do more because there should be more funny stories in the world. In
0: my opinion, <laughs> how, <laughs> how many submissions do more you funny get? I'm sorry, what was that? Sorry, so, how many submissions do, do you tend to get? It sort of varies when we have like.
1: a um, a, a themed one which is specific like flash fiction then we get many more so uh, we would I guess we'd probably get between about 40 and 60 we used, to, we used to get slightly fewer when we were monthly now we're bi-monthly we get between sort of 40 to 60 sometimes mm. goes up to sort of 80 something 80 sometimes 100 if we do a flash fiction event the definitely break 100 most times when we really? do our women and girls event that's that's an annual thing now because we realized that in terms of authors submitting to us it was about two-thirds men um really? yeah yeah it seems odd because short stories like really? there's a lot of kind of prize winners and stuff it just so happens that yeah just kind of going through you know uh, uh, kind of assuming from gendered names but you know when I when I didn't know you know I just kind of discount it but yeah it was, it was about two-thirds approximately two-thirds male authors didn't necessarily mean that it was it was two-thirds of the stories that got selected but nonetheless mm. it would be nice to have parity in submissions uh, mm. so to encourage more more women's stories. We have a women and girls event every August and we always get a lot of submissions for that. Uh it's a funny one because you're like, well you you know you can submit for all the other themes as well. <laughs> <laughs> Actually your competition is going to be quite a lot stiffer if you submit for women and girls. But I think it's sort of being given permission to send your yeah. stuff in, you know, oh this month mm-hmm. is for me. Okay, well, you know, I didn't really feel confident to submit it anymore, but what the hell? So that's really good. And we've had some really funny stories in for that as well. I think one of the first ones was about a woman on a just absolutely nightmarish yoga retreat wellness retreat or something <laughs> that with a kind of brummy charlatan yoga teacher <laughs> It, oh, i'm was, liking that already uh, yeah it's done so uh, the author's fiona it might be fiona salter it's fiona something anyway and and it was a wonderful character piece and just like the voice of the yoga woman is so well done by the actress and yeah anyway so yeah um it's it's something where we will get certain themes and certain you know uh, kind of um, restrictions or whatever certain particular like spe- special special Events we'll get more th- more stories, but usually yeah. sort of forty to sixty. What happens is Liam and I. Liam Liam is the host, and I'm the behind the scenes. I I am I am tech. I do video and um, blogging, and website, and all that sort of thing. Podcast. Yeah, um, we'll read through all of the submissions. Both of us will read everything, and we will decide on on the best thirty of how many submissions we get, and then we send those thirty to the other liars and we've got a couple of writers a couple of actors you know people who just kind of have good taste as far as we're concerned editors one of our liars michael works for the tls various different different people and then we get votes in and it's all decided by vote it's not one particular person's editorial
0: oh, taste right. yeah
1: yeah Interesting. yeah, yeah you, so if you if you get in line so you've got to have i think sort of Probably at least three votes um, out mm. of maybe, it depends, different different times. We might have like six people voting. Sometimes we might have five or four. But, you know, you have to have a kind of a, a consensus that this is a, a really good story. So, and I think it helps to kind of make the range broader because there's certain stories where I love them and nobody else votes for them. I'm like, my God, you're all Philistines. What's going on this <laughs> how dare you dislike the story or other people will vote for one where I'm like yeah you know it's pretty good but it didn't set my world on fire but actually you know often I have to kind of eat my words a little bit I'm like oh that story that I didn't like that much it's gone down so well or you know on rereading I really liked it you know I never recant my love for a particular story but you know I have been forced to change my mind on stories that I was less enthusiastic about that then have actually worked brilliantly so you know um, but if it was just me, it would, it would be my taste, you know, you wouldn't get a lot of that variety and, and interest that comes when you have to have sort of three or four people agree that a story is, is, is really good and worth reading. So, yeah, yeah. Edit- editing by consensus. Mm. Funnily enough, it actually works.
0: <laughs> awesome. Right. With the, coming to the end of this, now, I feel really bad that I've not asked you at all anything about your own uh, uh, work. <laughs> <to try. laughs> do <Don't worry. clears throat> Although I, I guess if it's I'm sort no, slightly no, outside the remit of, it, of 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 the the uh, the podcast because um
1: Yeah. It, it's not a a minute. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a great book though. Well, I, my my copy says The hall's of Asylum the one but uh, I, I guess oh, the, uh, you've got the
1: first edition. Though. I got the first edition.
0: Yes, indeed. Yeah. yeah. A Gothic yeah. Love of Friendship Desire and Secret to the Dark Heart of Victorian England.
1: Mm-hmm. absolutely there are some kind of more humorous passages in there but it really i mean the whole thing is is more kind of a dark and uh dangerous i would say at least dark and exciting rather than dark and depressing but yeah no i mean that's why i love short stories actually you know i do write short stories i do when i want to write something funny it will it will be a short short story and, you know, I, I have written various ones. I'm just trying to think if any are uh, online at the moment. No, I tend to write them under pseudonyms and submit them to Liars League. So, so, <laughs> so nobody's like, we, we judge everything anonymously anyway. Mm. But just, you know, and then like if they get picked, if they don't get picked, then there's no shame in it. And if they do get mm. picked, then it doesn't look like an abs- I'm an absolute nepotist so I'll just like <laughs> publish them under a pseudonym you know um but I'll have that great thrill of like watching watching people enjoy them so yeah um but yeah in terms of uh sort of novel stuff i mean what what i like to read is is you know gothic literature i'm a big fan of sherlock holmes you know it's why i'm yeah. willing to read a 700 page novel about you know an, an 1845 arctic expedition you know loads of terrible things happening to people on the ice i i sort of gravitate towards this historical and kind of the the darker end of it just i think because of the drama but Ooh. i i mean wouldn't it be wonderful to write a, a comic novel but i let's put it this way i i Uh, have story-sized ideas and novel-sized ideas and I've never had like a funny novel-sized idea a comic novel-sized idea but Mm. sometimes when I get a funny idea it's it's nearly always story-sized and partly because it might have a punchline at the end you know Mm. or because it might involve a sort of absurd exaggerated character that you probably wouldn't want to spend hundred thousand words in the company of but yeah I mean they're they're their own sort of lurid fascination the kind of uh, gothic and kind of um, his, historical drama type novels and they were well they're what I read for pleasure so it, it makes sense to to write more absolutely yeah, yeah I've just cracked a hundred thousand on the last on the the, the next one that potentially
0: That's
1: nice. yeah sadly it doesn't mean I'm anywhere near the end <laughs> <laughs>
0: God,
1: yeah. I've, I've, so, I've, I've never written anything that goes over hundred thousand. You, sir, are uh, very wise. It's <laughs> <laughs> just you no. know how it is. You're just like, oh, I've got this much plot. I'm sure I can do this in you know twenty thousand words. And then you're like, I'm sure I can do this in ten thousand words. And then you realise actually, no, you, why? Yeah, I suffer from too much plot sometimes. So I have to write it all out and then I have to cut it all back. And that's just the only way I know how to do it. But it's rather frustrating. Yeah but uh yeah maybe if i wrote humor if i wrote long form humor it would be shorter
0: because yeah. yeah. you can't that's draw it out in the same way no. yeah
1: <laughs> and you don't have to and if it wasn't historical i wouldn't have to bloody describe everything clearly that cut 50
0: 50- <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah uh, uh, well mm. thank you very much for coming along it's oh my just, pleasure that's, yeah no, i said yeah it's really enjoyed talking to you some, uh, oh thanks very much some um, very interesting stuff there really.
1: Excellent. I, I would plug the next Rising League event, except we haven't confirmed a venue yet for Fools and Sages, so it'll either be online or offline, we're just waiting to hear back from the pub, mm-hmm. um, but uh, the one after that is going to be June, and it is Order and Chaos, so we will be back at the Phoenix in June, the second Tuesday in June, which is I think a 9th, uh, I'm just going to confirm that. Oh no, the eighth, so June the eighth, market in your diaries. There will be the triumphant return of Myers League with Tales of Order and Chaos.
0: And uh all um, wanted to submit to that.
1: Yeah, the deadline like is or? well it depends when this is going out, but the deadline yeah. is and so yeah, it's about five days off. <laughs> but we may, right. ex- we may extend we may extend that miss deadline. That one. <laughs> Right no, we, yeah. we might actually extend that that deadline because um we haven't um done the fools and sages we haven't done the april event yet and also need to publicize we've had a decent amount of stories in but we can always do with more order and chaos perfect for a mathematical writer surely
0: yeah it's tempting actually i, I, I've, I've, I haven't written a short story for years oh my god please
1: do please do yeah, be, yeah. yeah. yeah uh, last words of emmanuel pretty john i really okay. like that right. one yeah, yeah. Really. yeah. Yeah, and that was a real challenge for actors as well. It's got like nine voices. And yeah, even, and the,
0: even I had to change then, it, so, that it swapped, so we had to swap it around, didn't I? To, we swapped so it around. alternating male and female.
1: Absolutely, yeah. yeah. But yeah. even then, and people were like, oh, I don't know, it's got nine voices. We're like, no, it's really good. We're going to do it anyway. We're going to come across, you know, we're going to find a creative solution. And uh, and we did, and it went down really well. So Yay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, well, fantastic. Um, yeah, that'll be the next live League in June. Looking forward to right.
0: it. Awesome. Pandemic right. be damned. Great stuff. Well, this place is intended to be free from adverts and Patreon requests. But if you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to reward us by buying our books or, in Katie's case, buying her books and signing up for her classes. <laughs> Katie is on Twitter as uh, Katie Darby Writer and her website is at katiedarby.com and mine is at jonathanpinnock.com. Oh, and I'm John Pinnock on Twitter. And do please rate, review, and subscribe. You'll find this podcast in all the usual places. Next time, I'll be talking to fellow Farrago author Paul Flower about Joseph Heller's Catch-22, as well as his own slightly-too-close-for-comfort satire, The Great American Cheese War. See you then. And, having listened back to all that, I've realised that a Zoom glitch swallowed the deadline for submission to the Liars' League Order and Chaos Night. However, as it happens, I've also just been informed that it has now been extended to May the 9th, so if you get your skates on, you should still be in with a chance. Check their website at com for details. And I wasn't just being polite to Katie just now, it really is a fantastic event to submit your stories to especially the ones that might be a little bit too funny for the lit mags. Good luck.